Everything, everywhere, all at once. From the sermon series, God on Film, spoken by Pastor Doug Cho. So I've been away for a while, uh, for the majority of July and August, actually. And many of you know we were away because we found out that my dad's really sick. Uh, His cancer reached stage four. And so it went from his kidneys and spread all over his midsection to everywhere. And so it was hard being away. Um, well, I'm going to talk more about that uh, later in the sermon. But, you know, I'm just thankful for everyone who's prayed. Really thankful for all of you. Just thank you for being here. Um, you know, we had some time for a vacation and we came back to New Jersey, the best place on earth. <laughs> if you're laughing, you don't actually know I really mean that with all my heart. Um, it is the, the greatest place on earth. Um, bury my bones here. Um, last week, Pastor Sunita, she kicked off our sermon series, like Pastor Peter just mentioned, on the Faith Foundations series. She talked about salvation. So we are taking a break, but I just want to highlight the importance of her message and how powerful that message was. And if you haven't listened to it, I hope that you do listen to that message. Because that, that what she was saying, not that her words were super profound, but the words that she was speaking are profound. Because salvation is something that we need to hold on to every single day of our lives. But today is God on film. Um, and so I'd like to consider today kind of like a part two of last week's message. The movie is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, as you saw on the screen, starring Michelle Yeoh as Evelyn, someone I love very dearly, Crouching Tiger, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And her her husband, Waymond, who's played by the actor Dada from The Goonies. If you remember The Goonies, yeah, Dada has returned. Uh, But if you watch the movie and you go to the opening scene, it's very distressed. There's a lot of stress in this. It's chaotic. She's in the middle of an audit for her laundromat business. Her apartment is really messy. It's tiny. Uh, Her daughter, Joy, is trying to get her attention, and she's annoying. She's actually just been served divorce papers from her husband, who she thinks is also annoying because her husband is really carefree and too optimistic for her. So it's just a lot going on all at once already. And so Evelyn, our character, is just under a lot of pressure right now. It's a very disjointed movie. And what I mean by disjointed movie, it's, it pops in and out of realities in the multiverse. And so if you don't know what that is, essentially the multiverse is a storytelling concept that uh, has alternate realities or universes that contain mostly the same beings of life. So for instance, if there were a different universe, like we probably would be there, right? But they live in different places or they live with minor or major differences in environment or decisions made. It's an alternate reality, right? And so because Evelyn rips through like four or five of these realities constantly, it gets a little crazy to explain. So I'm going to try to explain this as best as I can. Essentially... Alpha Waymond, not Raymond, Waymond, takes over her actual husband's body, right? He grabs up and he says, there is a great evil that is trying to destroy the universe. It's called Jobu Tupaki. And he gives Evelyn this crash course 
on verse jumping. So what verse jumping is, is essentially you summon or you call upon the experience and the skills and the expertise of an alternate reality you. And then like you can like use that. And that explains why she does all this kung fu and all this stuff during the movie. As she's going on this story and this journey to defeat Jobu Tupaki, she finds out that the enemy, the villain, is actually an all-powerful, alternate dimension joy, her daughter. And so her daughter in this universe has experienced every universe and all their choices and pathways, and she becomes this super-powered villain because she comes to the conclusion that nothing we do in any universe matters. That there's no point in any of our choices. And because of that, we might as well just get rid of it all. She actually challenges her mom to join her in her nihilism. And so there's a lot of themes in this movie, a very heartfelt movie. There's themes of family, shame, love, forgiveness, universal themes of existential crisis, and of course, nihilism. And so I think it's just right or proper that I propose this question to us today. And the question I want you to think on, to sit with, to dwell with today is, what is your reality? Do you know your reality? And there are two realities we're going to talk about today, too. The first is our reality. Our reality. And the second is the reality of salvation. Because I found the movie particularly relevant today. If you don't know, nihilism is something that much of today's generation actually subscribes to. Right? Nihilism or nihilism, by definition, is the rejection of all religious and moral principles and the belief that life is meaningless. There's no point to it. So why bother? Why care? Why build something? It doesn't matter. And so this is very much present today. You have to know that. And so that brings us to our first point, our reality. Because there is some truth to this philosophy, whether you like it or not. Even the Bible affirms what the antagonist is claiming. I go to Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is King Solomon. Wise, rich King Solomon. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And then he continues this pathway during this chapter, and he just talks about how pointless it is to live. Because the earth, our world, is going through this universal cycle. Of, it just repeats and repeats and repeats. And any change that is made is eventually erased. Or any person that is, no matter how famous they are, they're eventually forgotten. He goes on and says this about learning of wisdom. Remember, King Solomon is the one who prayed to God for wisdom, received wisdom from God. He said, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. It means nothing. 
in the grand scheme of things. And then he goes further. Because remember, King Solomon was a hedonist. King Solomon had 300 concubines. King Solomon was really rich. And you know what he says about that? He says about experiencing all the pleasures ever. He says about laboring and amassing all this wealth. He says it means nothing. Nothing. It's worthless. And then he changes course. Chapter 3. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. That is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. God has made everything beautiful in its time. What this means is, what this, what this line means is, everything you're going through, every season of hardship, of joy, of celebration, of mourning, of uncertainty, a lot of you are uncertain right now, of doubt, all of these seasons, there is beauty in them. Whether we know it or not, whether we experience it in the moment or not, the promise here is that God redeems all of it in its time. He puts eternity in the human heart. What this is saying is, by the way of our design, all of us, by the way of our design, although we are unable to see or to know or to understand or to fathom what the Almighty has purposed for us, there's something that draws us to that, that draws us to the infinite, that draws us. The, our hearts are naturally gravitating to what is of God. So this means that if your identity is fixed on Jesus, it means your lives are also centered on the things of God. Because naturally, in our hearts, we are inclined to go that way. There's something there because God has called you there. So anytime you've actually asked yourself, man, there must be more to this life. There must be more than this. It is because you intrinsically know, somehow, somewhere, you know in your heart that there is more than what meets the eye in the moment. All of this leads to worship to our God and our Father in heaven. So back to the movie. As the story goes on, Evelyn quickly decides she doesn't want to destroy her evil daughter. She wants to save her daughter, because it's hurts her daughter. And she comes up with this crazy, reckless plan against the Jobu Tupaki to free Joy, because she thinks that Joy is controlled by this evil being. But Joy herself actually tells her mother, she says, no, I am not being controlled. This is just who I am. I am this person. And that really shakes Evelyn to her core. And eventually she's swayed for a, a, a temporarily into this hopelessness, right? There's actually this scene where the two of them, 
they're in an alternate reality. They're, they're rocks, right? It's weird. Um, but they're rocks looking over a canyon. And they say to each other, the universe is so large and every discovery is a reminder that we're all just small and stupid. Insignificant. And so what I enjoyed about this movie is that there is a strong temptation to compare ourselves. See, Evelyn, as she's verse jumping, she, she gets to experience or taste different realities where she's famous, she's affluent, she's rich, she's skilled, she's smart. And she becomes addicted to want to, the, the desiring to live into that reality. And so there's this temptation that we have to compare ourselves, not to other people, even though we do that, we compare ourselves a lot, but to compare ourselves to alternate realities of ourselves. To compare our lives to fantasies built on this idea of what if? What if I didn't marry this person? What if I chose a different job? What if I didn't make that bad investment? Regrets that we have. Maybe I should be. I could be. But I'm not. Daydreaming to escape what we live in today. So my question to you, my challenge is, do you actually understand your reality? Do you actually understand the reality that you live into? Because this is the problem that we need to have with calm, tame, powerless Christianity. All right, this is the problem that we need to have with it. Many of you know that I actually, I tried my hand, no pun intended, at being a professional poker player in my early 20s. All right, uh, I still have regrets about it today because I feel like I wasted years of my life and lots of money. And it still makes me shudder to think about the things or the, the grandiosity I was mixed up in, thinking that, you know, uh, I was well on my way to some sort of infamy or fame. Uh, and I actually can't forget the loneliness that was carved into me just walking down the Vegas Strip at like 4 a.m. in the morning with five bucks in my pocket, having lost tens and thousands of dollars. And I look at that, and I remember weeping in my hotel room. And for years, I was like, man, like, what is the point of all this? Besides the fact that it took me forever to graduate college. But if I truly believe the writer of Ecclesiastes here, that God makes everything beautiful in its time, I have to anticipate, not just think or think that there's a possibility, I have to anticipate that there's redemption somehow, some way, I cannot expect or understand at the moment. I have to. Why? Because our reality is that redemption has already come. If you call yourself a Christ follower, then what do we say? We say, it is finished. The tomb is empty. But that's not just an Easter thing. 
That's not something that you say one day out of the year. That's not something that you celebrate one day out of the year. If we truly understand the magnitude of this power, of this grace that is on your life, along with the concept that God, the God of the universe, this cosmic-sized God, he sees you in it too. That God, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, resurrected him, broke sin, broke death. He sees you too. And he has purposes for you too. That he prepares things for you. He goes before you. He goes with you. He follows after you. He guides your steps. We have to believe these things as Christ followers. Then what? My worship must come every day. Every day. Let's jump to Ephesians 1. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all one authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in that one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in that way. Paul here is praying that you, God's people, will be enlightened so that you would know that God, in his glorious riches, his inheritance is in you. God's inheritance, so we have an inheritance in heaven, yes, but God's inheritance is in you, his people. And then Ephesians 3, what does Paul pray? Paul prays for power, power for God's people. Why does Paul pray for power? Not so that we can do miracles, not so that we can go out and be impressive people. God, Paul prays that God's people would have power so that they could fathom how Large the height, the width, the depth of God's love for you is. That's it. That is how reality altering this truth is. That is how important that is. See, that is our supernatural reality that we are called to live into every day. And so when I think of Pastor Sunita's sermon, when she preached just the pure gospel, that God, longing to not see his people condemned, finding a way for his people, because he's a just God, right? But he's an almighty and compassionate God, full of grace and mercy, calls his people to him because he loves them. Sheesh. Come on. That is our reality. And next is the reality of salvation. 
Evelyn finally embraces her own reality as well as her daughter's. And her final shift goes from fighting to change her daughter to fully pursuing and embracing her daughter through the kindness of her husband. And as they're fighting and arguing, Evelyn embraces her daughter for who she is while still holding on to what she believes. And so as I was watching this, I was, it was really heartwarming because I find that no matter how old or young we are, we need to be reminded that we're loved. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how stoic you want to put yourself off to be. You want to be reminded and affirmed that you are loved some way, shape, or form. I tell my wife I love her 40 times a day. And it's not for her, it's for me. Because I want her to tell me that she loves me too. I will tell my daughter the same thing in hopes that she will tell me that she loves me too. But we need to be reminded that we're loved. We also need to be reminded that God loved us even before we did a thing. That Romans 5, Romans 5 is always true. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That remains true every moment of our existence. So I only find it appropriate that we, when we look at scripture, we look at Luke 15. Luke 15 is a set of three parables. I call it a set because these parables are not meant to be read separate from each other. They're meant to be read together. Right? I'm not going to talk too much about the first two, but the, verse, the first verse is this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So basically the context is Jesus had been teaching to the crowds and the Pharisees for some time, and the tax collectors, the traitors, the traitors in that culture and the sinners, the outcasts in that culture, they began to crowd around Jesus because they were really resonating with what he was teaching. And then the Pharisees see this and they're like, oh my God, he welcomes those people. And Jesus hears that. And he said, oh no. And he drops three parables, right? Three parables. And you have to know, remember, the purpose of the parable is to disrupt the framework by which you live. So any, anytime you encounter a parable in the Bible, its purpose is to disrupt the framework by which you live. So Jesus is saying, oh no, you have this wrong. And what he is doing is he's disrupting the Pharisees' view of God's heart for God's people. So the first two parables are about a shepherd who loses one sheep out of a hundred and about a woman who loses one coin out of ten. And the shepherd and the woman, they both go through long, arduous process of searching for this one lost one. But the key here in these two parables is the amount of joy, the tremendous joy that they experience when they find the one. There is tremendous joy, so much joy that they have to share their joy Right? In the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. And then Jesus follows this up with the prodigal son. Verse 11. Jesus continued, there is a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. This is culturally offensive. No son asks for their estate or their inheritance before their father passes away. Essentially, he's wishing for his father to be dead. 
Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So this kid goes off, wastes all his money in a country uh, two people that, he, that are not of his own. They're obviously a Gentile country because they deal with pigs, right? And pigs were culturally dirty to the Jews back then. So they have nothing to do with the pigs, but you know, now he finds himself longing for what the pigs are eating because he is so poor, so wretched. He has fallen so low. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So the way I interpret this, this is not a repentance moment for this son. When he comes to his senses, it's, he snaps out of his hunger. And he's like, why? Why, why am I trying to eat what these pigs are eating when I can just go back home and I know that the people that work for my dad, they eat really well. They, they do fine. So I'm going to do that. And so be, when you translate that word hired servant, it, it translates to skilled worker. Like, these aren't slaves. These are hired people that make a wage. He said, oh, I'm going to go back and make a wage and I'm going to eat. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So here's the question. Why does the father run? Back in those days, shameful for men to run. Right? Aristotle is quoted, great men do not run. Right? Men do not run back in those days. It is not is not graceful, it is not respectful. That's not what they do. So why does he run? Why does he rush to his son? Yes, he was desperate because he loved his son, but why? Back in those days, there's a ceremony called Keza. And what that is, is when the town finds out that someone squanders or loses their wealth to another country, to people that are not their own, there's great shame in that. So when that person returns back to the town, they meet them before they can enter in on the outskirts of the town. The whole town gathers and they bring a huge clay pot with them. And before they can come in, they shatter that pot in front of them. And what that pot is symbolizing is this relationship is severed and it can never be put back together again, just like this pot. It's great shame in this ceremony. And the son probably knows this. And the father definitely knows this. And that's why he runs. He runs to stop this ceremony from happening, from these people who are gathering, coming for his son. He runs to cover his boy's shame. And he takes it upon himself. Verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. If you notice, his script is cut short here. There's contrition. There's repentance. And there's guilt. There's guilt here. But the father is not about that guilt. Verse 22. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father restores his son immediately. Before his son can do a thing with his inheritance. He says, it's yours. Because my inheritance is in you. And that's why he celebrates. Because he found his boy. It's just like we read in Ephesians 1. There's great joy because the father's inheritance is in his people. At the end of the movie, Joy tells Evelyn, it's just too painful for us to be together, right? They're trying to reconcile, but Joy's like, I can't do it. It's too much. And Evelyn replies to her, there's something out there that explains why you still went looking for me through all of this noise and why no matter what, I will always want to be here with you. Mm. Uh, when we went to Korea, uh, we spent about six weeks there. It was like 45 days. And it was really hard. Uh, unfortunately, that trip wasn't, like, it wasn't meant for fun. So even though I love Korea and I love being in the country, we didn't really get to enjoy it. Um, my purpose or my mission going out there was I was holding on to a vision that I, I feel God had given me about my dad coming to the Lord and being baptized. And, you know, I got so much affirmation. I got so much prayer from this community. So thank you so much for praying for us. I really don't think we could have survived without your prayers. But, you know, I went and it was just really hard. We had a lot of hard conversations. And, you know, he wasn't as receptive as I wished he would have been. And we talked about all of his regrets and all the things he wished he could have done so differently when it came to being my father or living his life or the business choices he made. You see, my dad's really successful. Like he, he did well for himself, but he's like, wow, it is just not enough. And he said word for word that he had made money, his God, for so long, he just couldn't give it up. And we talked about shame, how he was ashamed of his life. We talked about being ill-equipped. We talked about how he felt like he was talentless and life wasn't fair. We talked about how he didn't think he was good enough to be my dad sometimes. We talked about how he felt like he was a burden in the moment because he was sick and he hates that. And it was rocky. It was up and down. It was angry. It was sad. It was... It was stressful. I was angry. I was sad. I was frustrated. It was fine and not fine. On and off. Even today, even now, three weeks ago, he called me. My mom called me, and I found out he had to go to the ER. Chemotherapy is not working anymore. 
Swap to immunotherapy, bad side effects. He can't eat. He needs IV drips. The week after that, he's fine. He's great. He looks good. Weight's coming back. The week after that, his face is like, it looked like someone punched him so many times. His face was swollen like a frog. He had to put like this special paste on his lips because they, they were just bleeding constantly. It's just another side effect. I had always been shy about sharing the gospel truth to my dad. But now, I really just, I have no time. There's no time. My brothers and sisters, the reality that we live in today is that there is a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you before you even cared, before you even batted an eye, because he loves you and he wants to be with you. That is the reality of our salvation. Let's pray together. I'm going to do something a little different. Um, I just feel convicted. My conviction on all this was really just to pray. Um, forgive me for not having true direction. But when was the last time you woke up one day? You're like, God. I'm truly just so thankful that I know you. That God, knowing you is the best thing. If it's been a while, given what we just talked about, let's approach the throne of God today. Not in shame, not with guilt. Because we're allowed to, God is waiting for his people to come. God is waiting for his people to minister to them, to be with them. That is his joy. And as we pray, um, I want to make a special invitation today. We did this in the first service. I want to do it again. Um, we're going to have the prayer team and the pastors come up here or in the front. And if you feel led, convicted, called, that the Spirit is just saying, you know, I desire resurrection in my life, in my spirit, in my marriage in my relationships, in my family, in my own soul. I'm tired. I'm sick of being disappointed. Spirit of God, I need you. I want to live in anticipation that you will make everything beautiful in its time.
I want to make a special invitation to you to just come up, get prayer, get hands laid on you. Receive an imp a special impartation of the Holy Spirit. Not that you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, but to affirm that God's Spirit is over you. He loves you. So we're going to pray. Rich and the worship team, they're going to worship, and then I'm going to continue leading us in prayer. Father God, we lift up this time to you right now, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak to your people? Would you move, God, ever so powerfully, so clearly, Lord? I pray those I pray those, Lord, whose hearts may have turned a little cold, for those who might be a little too experienced as followers of Christ to be refreshed today. And I pray, God, not for the sake of the service, but for the sake of affirming their desire to know you, that they would leap to their feet and that we would get prayer. Would you put that desire in us, Lord? We worship you. We love you. Let's keep praying together.